right, hey, another episode of Bubba the Hunter Podcast, episode nine. And uh, following up a couple good episodes here, we've changed up a little bit here. We've got uh, the Snakeaholic on for a main segment here. The Snakeaholic, Kevin Pavlidis. Uh, you know, just down there in Florida and uh, hunting some pythons. And uh, went once again here, Robin Ryan. So, what what a good one that what good talk with uh, kevin yeah we've been we've been uh after the invasives lately so it was a you know i guess this might be the you know the 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 grand of the grandiose of invasive species is the burmese no doubt on in south florida so or throughout the everglades and uh it's interesting enough that the snakeaholic who's hunting burmese pythons in the everglades is actually from long island but hey that works too yeah, for sure. He made the move from New York to Florida to hunt pythons, and that's what yeah, he does. And it's a it really is. cool episode. And I mean, just it's just a it's a cool gig, really. Like his YouTube channel, and I think he has what the is it the state record, uh, eighteen feet nine inch long, something like that. He does have the state record, and he does talk about that. And uh, certainly put a link in in our description for this episode of the video he put out. And that it was it was that was what caught my attention on bringing you know reaching out to him, see if he wanted to come on to the Bubba Show. And uh, yeah, it was a nice video, and it's just unbelievable to me. I don't know, I'm you know just a simple simple man, Bubba from the north, and knowing that there are Burmese pythons that big out there and this invasive and this kind of destroying some of the habitat in Florida and South Florida. Just destroying the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, we talked yeah. about a lot of the science and it was really interesting. You know, he was, uh, he was working with some of the biologists that was doing uh, topographical type stuff or GPS, I think. Uh, yeah. Telemetry. Telemetry on tracking on them, yeah. tracking the pythons. And we talked about gestation periods and, and how many eggs in a nest per clutch. And I mean, man, just good stuff, you know, and if, if in fact we're ever going to get ahead of the pythons in, in the Everglades, uh, they've killed, they think what 90% of the small mammals on the, in the Everglades. Yeah. Um, that was just crazy to think yeah. that like the small, you know, uh, wow. So, you know, yeah, interestingly, ahead. uh, so just the other, after we had talked with Kevin, had him on a segment, I, I come across this link uh, that Governor DeSantis actually just la- launched a um, Burmese Python Invasive Challenge for Florida. So, um, mm. yeah, that, that was pretty interesting. And it's, you know, certainly this issue of invasive snake has made it all the way to the governor's desk and it's certainly getting some attention from it's the top. Of a deal it'd be cool yeah. if we could figure out like a spray like roundup you know how they have some like soybeans and corn at a roundup ready like you spray uh-huh. it and roundup ready yeah it yeah. just kills everything else like if we could just somehow spray everything like a dust it with you know the airplanes and it just kills the pythons off yeah exactly. i am anti-invasive there is no need. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely uh, the, the Burmese pythons in Florida. I I, I could uh, stand for getting rid of all those for sure. And they're scary. So I don't like they're, they you know, are. We can't eat them. They're not really, I don't think, like fun to hunt to me. You know, it, it's just, it's a challenge. Yes. And it's a lot of work. Yes. And then they're 19 feet long. So yeah, I don't uh, really have an interest. I mean, they could easily eat me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I certainly don't have an interest in it either. Uh, you know, it's good that we have guys out there like Kevin just doing that. He's got a team of guys down there helping him. He talks about that. Uh, you know, and like you said, he went all the way from New York, Long Island, down to uh, South Florida to live his dream and follow his passion. He is certainly uh, passionate about the uh, snakes and reptiles. And uh, he goes on and talks about that. So yeah, he wrestles alligators and. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, how about well, Wrestles Alligators? That yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was an, I didn't even know that was on his uh, a repertoire of skill set there. And, yeah. and then uh, they talked about that. That was pretty cool. Yeah, very good uh, talk. Very smart, very interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could have talked for hours. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. So yeah. So uh, there's a there coming up a good a main segment with the Snakeaholic. All right. Yep. Hey, glad to have you on, Kevin. Thanks for taking some time here as we've been talking about invasive species on our show for a couple episodes now. So, uh, yeah, uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Good deal, man. Uh, so, you know, Ron, you were just talking about the invasive feral cats. Oh, you got to you got to take that on for a little bit here because uh, invasive species yeah. in general. Right. And yeah, I mean, so what you're doing, you're snakeaholic, as the shirt says. Right. So. You're in the Everglades chasing down the Burmese python. Um, That's correct. So before I dive into that, because I honestly have, I have a whole list of things that have just, I find it almost fascinating, but I will say this prior to Rob saying, we need to get, we need to get Kevin onto the podcast. I have twin five-year-olds and my son is a YouTube-aholic. Okay. Instead of the snake. (laughs) And not, you know, there's a bunch of, I didn't realize I'm not a, I mean, I'm, I watch, I seek things out on YouTube. I just don't randomly, like I, I know what I'm looking for. So he started yeah. going like the fishing videos and there's a bunch of families that have videos, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe a month ago, he ended up on one of, on one of your videos and we all watched it. So maybe it was even longer than a month ago. But anyway, so when Rob said, we need to have you on there, Snakeaholic, I'm like, I've been watching this guy on YouTube because my son, he's all into it. So he's five tonight. And I told him you were coming on the podcast and he was like, and he's as serious as can be. He was like, I really think we should go catch a snake with him. <laughs> I said, buddy, those snakes will eat you. And he went, no, no, not if you catch them right behind the head, they won't. And he said it as, as sure as can be. <laughs> and trust me, if you get to meet, if I ever have the chance of meeting him, he's wired a little different. He's really not afraid of anything. And I know. Sounds like my kind of person. Yeah. If, if you, if you <laughs> offered a, a, a Python hunt in the Everglades, he'd be all for it for some reason. <laughs> with a five-year-old. Yeah, five-year-old. But oh, man, anyway. That'd be great. So these invasive species, I was just telling Rob, like I'm, I'm fighting like uh, invasive species, the plant species on my property here. Right. Like, um, and most of them are from Asia, you know, like, and I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just wondering, like everything you fight, you know, whether it be autumn olive and you've got, uh, uh, the, uh, geez, oh, man, I'm drawing a blank, but anyway, all the, all the invasives that I'm hacking and squirting and trying to like, at some point when they come from like the Asians walk around going, that's a native plant <laughs> because <laughs> like, they're okay with it and being, it's, it, I mean, it's invasive as in it's not from our country, but it's also it overtakes a landscape and that's exactly what's happening with the pythons right like yeah there's a key distinction between non-native animals and invasive species like there's a a distinction that they're not the same just because they're not from here doesn't mean they're invasive they obtain invasive status once they actually start doing environmental damage and hurting our ecosystem but there are non-natives that are not invasive Like where I grew up in New York, we have these Italian wall lizards and they're obviously from Italy. They're not from the United States, but they haven't been found to cause any actual environmental damage. So they're not an invasive species and thus nobody really sees it as an issue. Italian wall lizards, like do they have their hair slicked back? (laughs) 
Italian wall lizard. Perfect place being in Long Island, right? It's loaded with Italian. Forget about it. Ah, it fit right in. Fit right in. If they could move a little more towards Brooklyn, they'd be really happy there. They fit right in. That's funny. So, so tell me about how destructive the Burmese python actually is in in the Everglades. Like, do we have actual numbers? I mean, and we know watching your videos and your pictures. I mean, you're catching some big snakes. So I can only imagine, yeah. I mean, they eat pretty much um, um, from deer down to what? But I guess, I'm, I mean, is there a, a number to put on how destructive they are as far as the native wildlife? Uh, we can, it, it depends by region. Uh, the big one that everybody likes to throw around is, well, the main animal group that they've had a huge impact on is small mammals. And in places like Everglades National Park, they've estimated that pythons have removed over 90% of the small mammal population in just the past couple of decades as their populations grew. So what is a small and mammal? I can personally, uh, small mammals like raccoons, bobcat, possums, foxes, rabbits, squirrels, wow. anything in that time, like anything in that group. And I can personally attest to that, that when we go into our high density Python areas, that we're hired to go remove pythons from, you won't see those animals. You won't see raccoons. You won't see bobcat. You won't see foxes, opossums, none of that. It's just not there anymore. They, as if they were never there. So they're so they've pretty much wiped that population out. So I guess on the plus side, I know there is invasive hogs down there. So how they how they uh, handle in the wild boar population? Um, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but not as well as they should be. Like I've raised a lot of questions about it because I mean, in terms of, of actually like the pythons attack the actual animals, the actual fauna, but the hogs, they do even more than that. They destroy the actual, you know, foundation of the ecosystem. Like they're all rooting up into the levees. And, and the main thing that really always makes me, um, you know, really, really hurts me when I see it is hogs are incredible at sniffing out turtle nests and they will literally just walk down a levee embankment and destroy every single turtle nest that's on there. And you can only think about how many hundreds of thousands and thousands of baby turtles they take out of the equation every single year. And no matter who I talk to, nobody has done anything about it yet. And I've talked to some pretty high level people. So you're saying they're not, they're not feasting on the wild boars as you'd like, like them to be. Yeah. I mean, the pythons will obviously take out some boar from time to time, but more so, you know, in terms of the actual, how people are looking at the situation, I don't think people are taking hogs nearly as seriously as they need to be because the hogs do a lot of environmental damage. Now the pythons will attack the actual fauna. They'll eat the animals, but the hogs go even further than that where they actually destroy, you know, the, the vegetation lines and like the, they'll just root up everything and just destroy the whole landscape, yeah. not even just the animals that live there. Yeah. And for wow. me, the big thing that I, that really pains me when I see it is that they're, the hogs are incredibly good at sniffing out turtle nests and they will just walk down a levee and just hit every single nest along it and clear out thousands of baby turtles that would have entered the ecosystem 
every single year. Yeah. And that breaks my heart every time I see it. Yeah. So, and, and Rob and I have had this discussion before. Uh, a hog has a very acute sense of smell. And I've been on farms in Georgia where have just hogs have overtaken. These are uh, properties managed for um, older age class whitetail deer. And whenever the hogs yeah. get there, I mean, you, you, you just can't remove them fast enough. Be, and they literally, like, they destroy an ecosystem. I mean, yeah. they root, like you say, their sense of smell is very well. They find everything. Uh, they're nest robbing. Um, I mean, you know, they're very opportunistic. They will literally destroy everything above ground and then root up everything below ground to eat it as well. I mean, yeah. They can really like again. You're right. People don't realize how bad wild boars are uh, for an ecosystem. They are an absolute atrocity when it comes to, if especially if you're a, a property owner or manager, because you can't do anything with it until they're gone. Yep. Yeah. That's it. 100%. So, do you do any wild boar hunting? No. No. <laughs> no. Not my department. So, how did you only... how did you get into the snake hunting? What led you I've been down doing that it my whole life, really. Just, uh, you know, since I was a little kid, I was always obsessed with snakes since I was seven years old. If I could get my hands on it, like I love to play with them. And uh, just the older I got, the bigger and more dangerous the animals I like to work with got. And uh, I actually got a job offer. I was in my, my last year of college uh, up in New York, and I got a job offer down here to be a professional alligator wrestler in Florida and to train you know, with the best of the best and work my way up to being one of the best handlers. And uh, I knew I had to take it. So I finished my degree. I had one semester left, dropped everything and moved down here 1200 miles away from my hometown and started wrestling gators professionally. And then while I was down you here, like WWE I knew I stuff? To do... What's that? Like WWE, like you had a belt and everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really like modified handling techniques that the native Americans used to use down here. But uh, yeah, we're not smashing them with folding chairs and, you know, <laughs> so, John so Cena, you that's know. interesting. And In what capacity was it for touristy type stuff? Yeah, that's, yeah, I still do that. That's where I was today. It's, I'm a little, a little bit drained to energy and a little sweaty still. Wrestling now, but uh, yeah, we work at uh, Everglades Holiday Park down in Fort Lauderdale, and we do educational alligator wrestling shows for tourists and members of the public that come through. So it's part of our environmental outreach and education programs that we do. And all the actual alligators that we wrestle are nuisance alligators that our team catches out of people's backyards and swimming pools and stuff like that. Wow. So I'm going to get, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So then that just kind of parlayed into you taking on the Burmese Python. Yeah. Well, well, I knew the, the pythons were a big thing down here and being that, you know, I was moving here to, to play with giant reptiles. That was just another you know thing I wanted to check off my list. And within my first month, I caught my first one and I've been catching snakes, you know, recreationally since I was a little kid, I've been photographing them and documenting everything for many, many years but when I caught my first python, it was like eight feet. Up until that point, the biggest snake I'd found in the wild was like, you know, six foot rat snake. You move up from like something like this to something like this. <laughs> and I was just hooked on, on the adrenaline right away. And I knew I wanted to, you know, just get obsessed with it further. So I worked my way volunteering really hard and actually then got hired on by the agencies down here. And I've been doing it professionally ever since. And very quickly started to rise to the top of the community. And it's, 
it's to the point of obsession with me. Like I, I still dream about catching pythons, even though I do it almost every day. I just, I'll wake up from dreams like, oh my God, I need to go catch a snake. Awesome. <laughs> hey, live your dreams and follow your passion, right? That's, That's it, what baby. you say. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, and you, you, yeah, there you go. Snakeaholic, live your dreams and follow your passion. Definitely got some <laughs> nice content out there on Instagram and on YouTube as gotta well. Got to keep man. the people motivated. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you got the energy for it too. Nice. So walk us through for, for the Bubba's. Like, so what it would it be like if, if, uh, you know, a, a non-resident wanted to come down and, and do some weekend snake hunting. Is that possible? How's that? Yeah, work? absolutely. So in Florida, since the Burmese pythons are invasive, it's open season year round. As many use as you can catch, you can remove them, but they do have to be euthanized on site. Now my, me and, you know, my roommate and all my teammates, we have permits to be able to transport them live to different facilities that we work with. But for a member of the public, you're fully allowed to catch and remove pythons from the Everglades. They just have to be killed on spot. And the other thing is that um, you have to just be a little bit careful the properties that you're on. Uh, Everglades National Park is really the only place right now that has a lot of pythons that members of the public are not allowed to go in and remove them from. And the only reason for that is because it is a national park. So it's under federal regulations and federal laws. So it's just... So, um... That's it. so the Everglades, the national park. Then the Bubba's can't show up there and do that. You have to be yeah. permitted for that. Yeah, just not Everglades National Park because it is a national park, so it falls under federal hmm. laws and regulations there. So you do have to be careful with that. But aside from that, most of the Everglades are more than welcome to remove them. However, I will tell you, it's a lot harder than people think. They're not like these are apex predators. The reason they're such a problem is they're experts at surviving. And the way that you survive is by avoiding conflicts <laughs> with, you know, human beings and other animals like that. So they're very, very cryptic. They're very, very hard to find. So I think a lot of people think they're just going to walk out and they'll be everywhere. No, there's a reason there are professionals hired to remove them. It's because it's not easy. It's challenging. Right. So how many are you removing? Like when you, whenever you're hired to go into a spot, like what, what does that look like? How many do you catch in a, in a day or a week or? It's very, very variable. It's largely dependent on the local environmental factors, you know, looking at your weather, your moon phases, time of year, you know, all that stuff comes into play. And, um, my best night ever, we caught 11. Um, there's, you know, quite a few days throughout the course of the year where we'll go out and not see anything, but we have it pretty dialed in. We know the, you know, what the weather, like I'll sit at home, watch the radar, watch the, the weekly forecast and pick my days and know exactly when I'm going to go, where I'm going to go to find the best weather conditions so that I can most likely catch the most snakes. So what are you looking but for? What, very, very variable. What are you, you looking know, for weather-wise? year as we're getting into what are you looking for weather-wise when you're watching the weather? What what is what is a, a trigger? Hot, humid, dry. That's what we want. So, you know, like this time of year, we'll get our days where it's it's ninety plus degrees out. That's perfect, um, and we want that humidity up, nice and high. But at the same time, we don't want it to have rained on our areas. Um, and the really, it's not the the water that does it. It's just that when these big rainstorms come through, a lot of times they can drop the temperature 10, even 20 degrees like that just real quick. 
and that can cause a shutdown in that area and the snakes won't really move well there. But um, we don't, we want as little of a moon as possible, as dark as possible. That's really a key factor. And, uh, and then aside from that, we're just, you know, picking the, um, the habitat that we want to dial in from. Right. So hot, humid, no rain, and you're at n- predominantly hunting at nighttime. This time of year, yes. In the winter, when it gets nice and cool out and it's nice and cold, that's the python's breeding season, and we can really dial in that daytime activity pattern. But most of the year in South Florida, we're looking at you know 90 degrees for like an average. That's way too hot for them to be out in the sun during the day. It's pretty much all nocturnal activity at that point. And they're really just hunting. We're intercepting them as they're trying to intercept other animals that they can prey on. So where do they where do they hang out during the day when it's so hot? Uh, they actually, from our telemetry research, we found that they spend over ninety percent of their lives actually submerged in shallow water. So a lot of times they're just in the swamp in that shallow water. Sometimes they'll curl up, you know, in, in dead logs or in dense vegetation just tucked away out of sight but they're ectothermic animals so they are looking for an optimal temperature and they're also burmese pythons are very very aquatic so they want shallow water and tucked away where they can find the right temperature so kevin back to what you you mentioned if a bubba comes down there and wants to hunt them they gotta and they find one on the right property they gotta dispatch it right there yeah now for you having a permit does that mean Sometimes you don't dispatch them or do you always, even no. when you take it back to your facilities, do you, do yeah, you dispatch Yeah, un- unfortunately, you know, in the early days of, of the Python problem down here, they were rehoming as many as they could. And, you know, the Florida Fish and Wildlife regulations allowed you to keep them legally. With every passing year, they just tighten the regulations down more and more and more. And it's pretty much impossible to have them as a pet in South Florida at this point. Like they're labeled as a prohibited species. So pretty much every snake that we catch winds up getting euthanized. But having a couple of of days that we can transport them for under our actual permits just makes everything easier for us. Because in the field, we don't have to worry about euthanizing them, putting them on ice. We don't have to, you know, worry about all. It's much easier to just bag them and transport them. And sometimes we have to euthanize them ourselves, but sometimes it's really nice. We just drop them off at a facility in a bag. Here you go. Your problem. I don't have to deal with it anymore, which is nice because when I first started doing this professionally, that's how it was. Like we literally dropped the snakes off at a biology lab at the University of Florida. And that was really, really nice for me because they're beautiful animals. I've been working with Burmese pythons in captivity since I was 11 years old. They're gorgeous. I love them. It's not their fault that they're here, but they do have to be removed because of the environmental damage. So to be able to just, you know, do all the fun stuff of jumping in there and catching them and have somebody else do all the dirty work was really, really nice. But those rules have changed a little bit. So we do have to euthanize them ourselves now most of the time. Yep. Now, the ones that you do euthanize yourself, are you able to make something out of them? Yeah. Or yeah. My roommate, it, Ryan, um, his company is called Field of Berm. B-U-R-M is in Burmese pythons. Uh, he does tons of leather work and taxidermy with them and everything. Like, if you can think of it, he can build it. He can make it. He's done shoes, wallets, belts, handbags. You, like, you've skinned. You've skinned Burmese pythons. You skin them. 
Yeah, yeah. We, we try to use as much as possible. So after we actually check them in with the state and, you know, they have all their official measurements and all the scientific data that they want, we retain the carcass most of the time. And at that point, we try and use as much of the animal as we actually you can. Eat them? So we'll take the skin, we'll take the skull, we'll take the heart, oh. you know. Uh, Ryan actually does, uh, he makes soap from the fat of the python sometimes yeah. too. Yeah, snake oil. Oh, nice. Yeah. Heck yeah, man. Man, what do I got to do to get a python skull? I collect skulls. Hey, just hit us up. <laughs> we got a whole beetle colony in our living room. And I'm hitting you up, right. I, mean, I got you right now. <laughs> Put me on the list for a python skull. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So, I hate to use the word euthanize and dispatch because I'm old school redneck Bubba. And uh, at the end of the day, we're hunters and killers and we're doing what we have to do for the environment. So do you, do you yeah. eat these things too? No, I, I don't, but some people do. Um, I don't eat any meat at all. It's not in my diet. I'm actually full vegan. Really? So it's, it's not on my to-do list. I have a couple friends that eat Python from time to time, but the main thing is, that you do have to be careful because they are apex predators. So the same problems you have with, you know, tuna and stuff like that is mostly bioaccumulation of mercury and other heavy metals. Right. So you do have to be very careful with that, you know, in terms of how big the snake you're eating is and the, how frequently you're doing it. But I know quite a few people that have eaten them or will eat them multiple times I, in a year. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing like if it were, if it were a top notch table fair, and more people would be hunting them. So it's probably not then. Yeah. Well, one of the things with them, uh, talking specifically about the biology of their meat, is they don't store their fat and muscle tissue together no, it's like a lot of other animals do. So there's they no marbling. Separately. Yeah. So like when we, when we you know, do necropsies and make a belly cut, all the fat is stored in big follicles in the actual like gut cavity. It's not mixed in with the muscle tissue. So the muscle tissue itself is pure muscle tissue. So it can be very, very tough unless you know, yeah. you know how to process it properly. It's just very lean, dry meat. Very, very lean. Yeah. Literally completely lean. That's interesting. Because <laughs> all the fat is stored in another part of the body. Are all snakes that way? Do you know? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I can say that from all the ones that I've necropsied over the years – Every species has been kind of the same. Um, I don't know 100% if that's across the board, but most of the reptiles that I've you know processed for taxidermy purposes or, or whatever, they always store their fat you know externally. That's interesting. So, since you've nec necropsied, uh, what is the most interesting thing you've found that one has eaten? Definitely deer hooves is probably the coolest one. Um, that snake was, uh, it's the one I have that one on my YouTube videos, uh, 17 feet, seven and a half inches, weighed 152 pounds and had deer hooves in its stomach. So you're looking at almost an 18 foot snake that's eating full grown deer. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what it looks like, like, an hour after it ingests the deer, because you would think the snake is yeah. only what, you know, what, how many inches around was that snake? 18 feet long. So what, what are you talking Probably about like that? So you're showing your hands. That's what, maybe a foot around. Well, I can show you how wide I actually have that skin here. Um, that's how wide that snake was. Oh my goodness. So obviously gracious. this is, would be a circle, not flat like this. Wow. But 
Why? Like when that skin was stretched out, it's wider than I am. Holy smokes! Wow. Yeah. That is crazy big. Uh, how long yeah. would it take to digest a deer? Wow. Wow. That's his skin, huh? Too bad the that's listeners the can't see this. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's from that 17 footer, man. It's it's enormous. We need to update our technology here, Ryan, for all the bubbas out there so they can see this cool stuff. Of course, you know, you can probably well, see it on a video of the Snakeaholic. Yeah, check out Snakeaholic. But so, so how often would it, if it, if it ate a deer, I'm assuming that would get it by for what, three or four days a week? Yeah, well, they actually, once they get to be that size where they're 17, 18 feet long, they probably only eat one to three times a year. Really? Um, and they will specifically target very very large prey items so that 17 footer probably only ate one or three times that year but the science has shown that these pythons actually maintain on average 33 percent of the body weight of the animal that they consume so if they eat a 100 pound deer they will most likely gain 33 pounds Wow. So that's then why they their fat is probably stored separately because if they're eating one to three times a year, that's how they're drawing their energy then from most specific yeah. fat storages. And they're also they're they're reptiles, so they're ectothermic and they're very, very smart about energy so wait, conservation. Explain, explain ectothermic. I've never heard that. Uh, ectothermic just means that they're cold blooded. It means that their body temperature is reliant on the environment around them. They don't produce their own body heat. So humans were endothermic, we are mammals, we produce our own body heat, and a lot of the energy from the food that we eat actually gets you know, combusted to keep us at the right temperature. Whether we're cold and we're needing to warm up, or hot and we need to sweat and bring it down, our bodies dedicate a lot of energy to regulating our temperature internally and externally. But reptiles don't do that, they're, they're ectothermic, so they're Temperatures just rely on the environment around them. So they'll move back and forth from, you know, sunlight to shade, dry land to water, changing their body temperature as they go to maintain their optimal temperature. And from what I've seen with these snakes and a lot of other snakes, they usually try to keep their body temperature somewhere around 80 degrees if they can get there. Wow. So do they lay eggs or do they have babies? So these are, well, so... All snakes actually do lay eggs to a degree. Um, the difference is whether those eggs hatch inside the body or outside the body. So the, uh, the term for when they have live babies, as we call it, is ovoviviparous. It just means that they retain the egg follicles inside their body until they're ready to hatch. And they'll literally lay them out still in that embryonic sac that would be inside the egg. But Burmese pythons do actually lay their eggs externally and they'll actually guard them and incubate them for on average 60 days before they hatch. And in Florida, those eggs start hatching right around now, right around beginning of July is usually when we first see those first clutches start to pop. So how many eggs does a female lay? Uh, The smallest clutch I've ever seen was 15. The biggest clutch I've ever heard of uh, was 122. 122 so, eggs. Yeah. So on average, I'd say the average nest probably has around 30 to 40 eggs. Um, but they can. So how long they, are they, they incubated have, for? Uh, they incubate them for about 60 days. They just lay, you know, in somewhere concealed 
curl around the eggs and just tuck in and they will actually shiver their bodies sometimes if they need to bring the temperature up or they'll just move off a little bit. They want to cool it back down and they work like that, just incubating everything and keeping it prime for hatching. So from a management standpoint, is there any incentive to go out and try to find the nest and destroy the eggs? Yeah, we we have additional incentives if we're able to find the eggs. Um, Those are extremely hard to find. Um, I have been called out to go get nests before, but I've never actually found a python actively guarding its nest. Uh, I know a few people that have, but it's such a rare occurrence. The main thing that we try and dial in is before they get to that point. And um, so in the breeding season, as we start getting towards the end of the breeding season, those females start to lay out in the sun a little bit more. And we really try to get them before they actually drop the eggs because it's a lot harder to find a snake sitting out in the sun than it is to find a snake buried under two feet of vegetation curled around a pile of eggs not moving right so i'm now my wheels are spinning here i would feel like there has to be a a breed of dog when you think of you know the blood tracking dogs up here in the north that track a lot of different things the the dogs the hounds that run lions that run bears are there species of dogs that you can use to help you locate these snakes and or the nests They've tried it on multiple occasions, and while it is theoretically possible, at the end of the day, it has not proven to be anywhere near as successful as human intellect. Um, Because like the stuff that we do, we're really just getting our, our brain wrapped around how these snakes think and thinking like the snakes and taking that angle and using that to locate them. The dogs just, the dogs can't do that, but they will pick up on actual scent. But I could pick where that snake would be better than the dog can, because I'll just look out at the different vegetation and go, okay, the snake, if it's here, is probably gonna be in this general area. And then we can just sweep that in a grid and find it if it's there. And if it's not there, move on. Here's a question that I, I got to ask, and I think you I think you have a video on that. But the first thing that comes to my mind is, have you ever been bit? Or when I think of pythons, have you ever been to the point of like, oh, my goodness, he's wrapped around me? Because I know in some of the videos, they start, you know, like we're trying to wrap around right. you. Do you ever get to the point? It's like, all right, we, we you know, uh, like a too close, um, co- close call point. To a degree, yes. Um, but... <laughs> I'll say this much. For starters, these snakes are not to be underestimated. These are apex predators. They literally eat full-grown deer, like six, seven-foot alligators at times. Like They are incredibly powerful predators, and they have to be respected. And when I go into that one-on-one battle, there's a lot of respect because I know what that animal is capable of. Now, that being said, we are professionals. And we've been doing it a very, very long time with very, very minimal injuries. Um, but I have had a few bad bites, as you would expect. It's, you know, I've, I've caught about 700 of these pythons now in the past three and a half years. You're going you're gonna to catch a few teeth somewhere <laughs> along the lines. So I actually had my worst bite ever was actually this past February. And um, 
that one was 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 pretty bad. It was about a 13 and a half foot snake. Uh, I think it weighed 83 pounds. So it was a big, gravid female full of eggs, full of fat follicles and just dove on her. And as I was wrestling with her, I just messed up and just lost my center of gravity, fell forwards and her mouth just went boom right across my hands. And um, and the worst part about that is most of the time when these snakes bite, they're biting defensively. So they'll bite let go and try and take off in the opposite direction. This bite, the reason why it was so bad is because the snake didn't let go. <laughs> and that was pretty bad because it bit me right across the hand, right across the knuckles, which man, dude, getting, getting hit or bit right on the knuckles is so painful, but she just bit locked on, didn't let go and slowly was still throwing coils. So it just started to rotate. And those teeth just slowly started tearing in. And uh, it's hard to see now because I'm pretty healed from it. But it's anything purple in here was all python bites. And uh, mm. there was one line right across the knuckle that was really hurt pretty bad. But luckily, the, the guy I was hunting with was <laughs> experienced in that department. And he knew enough to how to handle the situation. It's actually really interesting. He actually took a credit card and slid it down the top row of teeth, which, because the, their teeth are long and recurved, so they hook back. Right. So you can't just pull out. It's impossible. It just, you'll just get deeper in and then break teeth off in your hand. It's a whole mess. So he took a credit card and slid it down the top row of teeth, which pushed my meat out of its teeth. And then the card itself blocked the teeth from going back in. And I was able to peel my hand out of there. But that was the most painful bite I've had. That one was was pretty rough. Had me on the couch for a couple of yeah, days. That's an American um, Express commercial if I've ever heard one right there. <laughs> What's in your yeah. wallet? What's in your wallet? In <laughs> <laughs> that story alone, like I gotta feel like you're like that's great. That's a great story to pick up chicks in the bar too. Like you know, <laughs> that's why I'm happy. I'm actually filling in the scar sleeve a little bit. That one didn't leave much of a mark, but actually, uh, uh, this one that's on my bicep. It's a little hard to see, but uh, you can see it right yeah. here. I think you guys can see that, right? Right. Yeah. Little three purple marks. That one was from a massive python we caught. It was a 135 and a half pounds, and we caught wow. it underwater. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> it was on the edge of a lake, and it just bolted into the water. And there were three of us, and we all dove on it. And my friends just anchored into the tail and mid-body but this thing was just dragging us into this lake. And at the end of the day, the only way I knew we were going to be able to catch it is just diving in. So I just, you know, dropped my bags and everything, dove into the lake and literally climbed up the body of the snake, like that rope in gym class, <laughs> just oh, wow. one hand over the other. And it, you know, as I got close to the head, I knew I was going to take some hits, but I got whack right in the bicep and just, you know, quick little tears whack, hit me in the other hand, hit me in the other hand, locked it in, then swam up to the surface with the head like, <gasps> I got it. <laughs> so that's nice. far, it looks the coolest, and it's got such a cool story behind it. But um, <laughs> that and I got a gator bite on my shoulder that looks pretty cool. A gator. That's a pretty good bar tip. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, yeah, wow. I like this. I like the scars. They're like free tattoos with a memory. Yeah, you know? man, there you it's go. a tattoo with a killer story, right? Yeah. yeah. 
I actually I told uh, a friend of mine, his name is Tyler Nolan. He's a pretty famous tattoo artist. And um, he got, <laughs> I told him like, if this bite on my bicep fades, I'm getting it tattooed on. Like it looks too cool for me to let that go away. <laughs> so how nice. far, what, what is the pythons range? Where are they at? And are they just limited to the Everglades or are they, are they starting to expand outward? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, they're swamp dwellers. It's like they live in that shallow marshy water that's all over, you know, South Florida so that's their main habitat. They don't really go too far away from, you know, that shallow water that they live in. But they are ranging from the Keys all the way up to the bottom of Lake Okeechobee throughout that habitat. I don't think they'll ever go much further than Lake Okeechobee because the habitat is not right for them. They want that shallow water. And even though they can live, you know, in more drier environments. Our telemetry research shows that they're over 90% aquatic living in that shallow water. So I don't think they're ever really going to get much further than that. <clears throat> Occasionally we have one that pops up in Miami and Naples and they pop up in these cities, but that's not a population. It's not what they need to survive, thrive, and develop into an immense population. So with your telemetry research, <clears throat> when you're, uh, tracking these animals a how old are they or how long are you tracking them for and how far do they go like do they have a home range or they do they wander you know how, what's that look like so for me personally i haven't participated in telemetry research but i'm very good friends with a lot of people that do so i take my you know redneck observations from the field and compare it with their scientific data and together by pooling all that knowledge we're able to get a better understanding of the animals because there'll always be, you know, some aspect that the scientists pick up on that we don't, but there'll always be a, a piece of it that we pick up on that the scientists don't just because they're different trains of thought, how we think. Um, but they found some very, very cool stuff. Uh, for the most part, they're finding that they do have a home range for the most part. Uh, they have areas that they know that they visit and the females have a smaller home range than the males, um, which we would expect the males in pretty much every species tend to travel further for breeding opportunities than the females do. They usually bring them right back in. Um, but anything specific that you want to know about their distance or what that research has found? Yeah. I mean, what, what has it found? How, how far does the male go? The, will male travel? The furthest that a male has ever been documented is 38 miles in one year. <laughs> wow. That's quite the range. They normally don't do that. It's normally somewhere around six to eight miles, but occasionally there's these outlier snakes that for whatever reason, just get on a kick and they go. And largely that's also dependent on stuff like water levels down here, because these are very, very big snakes. They're heavy and it's a lot easier for them to move through the water than it is for them to inch their way across dry land. So once we get these years where the water is really, really high in the Everglades, it basically turns the whole ecosystem into a highway for them. And it makes it a lot easier for them to cover big distances at a time. So they're not, they're not staking out of territory and defending it. They're, especially in the breeding season, they're roaming around looking for mates. And, yeah, yeah, so in, in the summertime, they're just looking for feeding opportunities. 
but once we get around September, October, at some point, the telemetry shows that no matter how far out they are, they'll gradually start to turn around. And sometimes in as little as two weeks, they'll cover miles and go right back to where they know there's going to be breeding opportunities. And sometimes along the way, they run into another female that they didn't calculate for, but when they find her, they stay with her. And they'll stay, you know, it depends on the, the individual, but some of the males are, you know, just like humans. Some of them are, are better at, at getting out there and getting the girls than others. Some of them are a little more promiscuous. And um, so some of them are, are real go-getters. Like they'll go, they'll breed with one female, boom, two weeks later, they're with another one. Two weeks later, they're with another one. And then there's other males that just suck at it. You know, they, they try all winter and don't find anything, or they find one girl and they stay with her all winter, no matter where she goes, they're no more than a hundred feet away from her. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, th- so this uh, eighteen foot nine inch python is yeah. it still stand as a Florida record? And you know, tell us about that. So, you know, that that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So and- that actually still stands as the Florida length record for Burmese pythons. And uh, yeah, that was that was, that was a pretty cool video, by mm-hmm. the way. The, yeah, the video yeah. you got on that one is pretty neat. So I'm actually going to check I'm, out I'm that. Making it, I'm, I'm redoing that video too, and making it a little shorter. Um, cause that was actually like my, when I released that video, that was the like, damn, I, I got to get a video out like right now with very little experience. So I just yeah. stitched everything together, threw it on there. Cause I knew it was going to be a big media thing and I wanted it yeah. to catch a little bit, but now with, with my editing, I'm like, I could have done that a lot better. <laughs> and I do have some a secondary angle I'm going to throw in there too. But, um, nice. yeah, that, that snake, man. Honestly, like we've had crazier captures since then, but that snake just the, the sheer length of it just just blew us away from the second we saw her. Because uh, so my car, we actually have the, this big metal roof platform on it that we actually stand on and we use lights to hunt from the top. I of saw it a tuna day. stand, right? You have a tuna stand on pretty your much yeah. the guy that built it for me custom. That's what he does. He builds tuna towers on boats. <laughs> So nice. We got you just strap- leave it on like all the time, like when you're going to Subway or whatever. To get oh it. yeah, yeah. And for <laughs> for a year, just in the past year, I finally bought another vehicle. But for over two years of living down here, my only vehicle was the one with the Python tower strapped to the roof. <laughs> so I drove it everywhere I went. Everybody knew and, who you uh, were. <laughs> yeah, I I certainly caught quite a few eyes in traffic. I just got used to people staring at at me. And uh, one of the fun things, though, is I never had to remember where I parked in a parking lot. <laughs> right. I just look out and I knew where I was. <laughs> That's nice. So yeah. With the, the 18 footer, you say that was a female when she was full of eggs. So it was a female, but it was a non-gravid year for her. Um, what the science has found is that the snakes will usually breed every other year. If their genetics allow for it and they are really, really have a really, really productive feeding year in the summer, they can breed back to back years. But on average, they breed every other year. Mm. So the snake that we caught, she was had probably bred just the year before and she was now not going to breed that year. She was still pretty, pretty skinny. I mean, for, you know, almost 19 feet long, she only weighed 104 pounds. 
She could have weighed double that if she was full weight, full of egg follicles and everything. It wouldn't have surprised me at all for that length to have a snake over 200 pounds. So what does the science say, like with with you guys and everyone else out there hunting them? Are we going to ever get in front of this problem or are we just going to play catch up forever? <laughs> the, the reality is no. <laughs> I know a lot of people aren't going to like hearing that, but the the main problem is just the the habitat that the Everglades is. With the current technology and abilities that we have, I see no way that we will ever completely remove them. If we could, it'd be great for the ecosystem, but just being realistic, we're probably not going to get rid of all of them. So I don't look at what we do as we're eliminating the pythons. I, I look at it more as a management thing. We're trying to get rid of as many as we can because every single Burmese python that we remove is one less apex predator consuming our native wildlife. And you take a little bit of pressure off our native animals with every snake we take out. And that lets our native animals rebound a little bit and get their populations back up. So that's really the way that we look at it. So are you seeing any rebounding of the small mammals? In certain locations, uh, Rocky Glades is is one of the areas that in the beginning of the programs was a real hot spot for them. Like we were pulling them out left and right. And uh, the way that that area is shaped, basically, it doesn't have a, a steady flow of snakes back into it. Like snakes do come back into it but not like it was the first year. It's basically that area is a water retention area for Everglades National Park. And like a lot of the areas that we go to, it's just wilderness. And then there's a road that goes right down the middle of it. And it's these dirt levee roads that are really used for maintenance by South Florida water management. But we have access to them to look for these snakes because it basically functions like a big drift fence. It's like these snakes are swimming through the swamp all of a sudden, boom, they hit this levee. It's high, dry ground, and they can smell mammals the second they hit it. Boom, they stay there. But that will function almost like a conveyor belt because it's like a drift fence right through the middle of that habitat. But these other areas, like I was talking about with Rocky Glades, it's really not like that. It's just like this little corner area of the Everglades. So it doesn't have a steady flow of pythons hitting it as much as other areas. So in that area, we have seen, you know, the marsh rabbit population start to go up a little bit. We're seeing a lot more deer in there and stuff like that. And, you know, it's hard to really prove that out, you know, scientifically to show linearly that the more we remove, the more animals there are. There's a lot of science and studies that have to go into that. But from what we are seeing in the field, we think in those certain locations, we are definitely making a difference. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, it's, 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 a, I mean, I guess from, I know there's no way, like it's a way, to, really good put, a way to put it that there's really no way to measure, but you know, the work you're doing is making a difference, but you, and you'd have to wonder if we weren't doing anything, what it would be like. We'd just literally be overrun with these things. Um, yeah, it's definitely something to think about. I mean, it's a little bit daunting because really the, the, to explain why it's such a problem is that most of the most of the snakes we remove are along along roadways and levee ways. 
right? So they're like basically roads that cut through the middle of the Everglades. But the problem is when you look at the expanse of the Everglades and think about how many roads there are that cut through the middle of it, there's very, very few when we really think about it. Right. So those do become hot spots for the snakes, but it also raises the question of, well, what's going on in all of these areas that we really have no way to access and no way to effectively hunt them? So the expanse of that wilderness is the daunting task of why it's really hard to say that we'll ever be able to get rid of them. The habitat is just, you know, it's just swamp. It's just grass. It's a river of grass is what we call right. it down here. How many, basically, are, how many are are you and not just you, but the group of hunters I mean, did the state have – how many numbers are we removing a year? So in total now, we've removed – from South Florida, there's been well over 10,000 of them removed so far. My program that I work with, we're just about to hit 6,000 that we've removed. Um, and it really just depends. So on, on years where we have really, really high water, we'll remove more snakes. Cause like I was saying earlier, it's easier for the snakes to move around. And then in drier years, we don't usually remove as many. So it's very, very variable. Uh, personally, my best year I've ever had, I removed 368 pythons and, uh, someone as dedicated as I am to it, where I'm out there every single week, sometimes seven days a week, I never remove less than a hundred in a year, but it's usually between one and, and 400 is how many I personally remove in a year. And I have a couple of friends who are just as prolific of hunters as I am, but there's actually a hundred licensed contractors in Florida to remove them. So yeah, we, we, we get well over a thousand a year between those two programs. Is there a bounty on them? Yeah, but only for people who have contracts. Oh. So regular old people feel free to remove them, but the state is not going to pay you for them. Uh, for us, we actually, you know, we're, we're on the clock. They pay us hourly to go look for them and they pay us per length um, of the snake for every snake that we remove. That's a pretty cool gig. If you love to do it, yeah. huh? It is. Hey, Rob but pulled again, up a map. Rob pulled up a map yeah. of the Everglades there. So where are we at as far as where you're at? Is it coming in? So, um, so right over here, this was what I was just talking about, that Rocky Glades area. But uh, this is all Everglades National Park. And actually, if uh, if we zoom out just a little bit. So this whole area, we could even zoom out a little bit more even. Um, just, just all of that. So you can see Lake Okeechobee is that big lake right in the middle. Yeah. The bottom edge of that lake is the northernmost extent of their range, but all of that stuff in the middle, that big wetland swampy look kind of comes in at a, at an angle. All of that is where they're just chocker block full. The whole thing has tons of pythons in it. And even just the highways that cut through it, like I-75 and US-41, they get hit by cars and caught by our people out there constantly just because, again, like it's right in the middle of their habitat. So they'll naturally come across it. Wow. Hey, looking at that, I have to ask, do you do any fishing? I used to. I used to be really, really obsessed with fishing. But once I got old enough to drive, the snake thing just kind of took over. Yeah. And uh, 
That's yeah, awesome. I mean, and now I mean, uh, one of the things that, that really, you know, I, I reduced my fishing as I got more into snakes, but I really gave it all up completely once I started shark diving. Uh, Cause it just, it, sharks are, are so incredible, man. You, you have no idea how, how incredible they are until you're actually in the water with them. And just from my first shark dive alone, just, just looking at these huge, you know, sometimes up to eight foot sharks you're swimming with. And so many of them just have these big old hooks and lines hanging out of their mouths. Mm. And it just broke my heart the second I saw it. And I was like, I, I, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Like I'd rather be diving with them than dragging them up to the surface just to take a photo and throw them back. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's been a, you know, and a lot of my friends, I grew up with fishing and they're big time fishermen. And, you know, I got a, a friend that was just doing a tournament last week up in New York. And uh, for me, I, I've just broke away from it. And I'm a much more observational person at this point. I, I like to observe my wildlife for a distance. And I also like to get hands on with it. But uh, I like a, a, a one-to-one battle, you know, just me <laughs> and the animal, very, very level plane. Either I'm going to die or I'm going to survive. That's it. <laughs> no games. <laughs> nice. Well, between alligators, pythons, and sharks, man, no, you, if you it can certainly kill me, got it I covered. I play with it. That's my That's, rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You know, I, the, the only reason I ask, Aaron, not to get us off the topic of snakes, but onto snakehead fish, is boy, that area just looks awesome for the snakehead. And I know oh, in Florida, yeah. you got the bullseye snakehead, which is an invasive yeah, species. Yeah, yeah. You know, up here Finally in Maryland, they're uh, they're even more so in the like in the urban areas up in the canals than out in the actual Everglades ecosystem. But man, there are so many invasive fish in the Everglades. It, it's crazy, man. Like some nights you'd be hard pressed to see a largemouth looking in the shallow water. It's just Mayan cichlids, Oscars, you know, the, uh, the plecos, which are those armored catfish, stuff like that. And that's all invasive. Yep. All those. Florida, actually, in terms of invasive species as a whole, Florida has more invasive species than anywhere else on the planet. Highest density of invasive species because our climate is so perfect that everything survives here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and to elaborate on that even a little bit more, I know we were talking about this earlier, but um, invasive species, you know, to understand the environmental impact that we're talking about. Invasive species is actually the second leading cla- the second leading cause of global extinction of species. So if you were to list the things that cause species extinction, number one is habitat destruction, and number two is invasive species. So that's how big of a deal that is. And then you take that concept and look at not only animals that displace native wildlife by competition, but now we're talking about apex predators that actually eat the native wildlife. It just takes it to a whole new level. Wow. That is very well put. There are problems. Yeah. yeah. A wealth of information. And I'll say, you know, really good you know, Kevin, not, uh, aside from this being just a very interesting dude that goes out there, sharks, alligators, pythons, uh, full of full, a wealth of information man you could do you could do classes on stuff you know especially <laughs> you know uh invasive species or you know even like uh for like kids you know middle schoolers on learning about the the everglades and everything else you got going on down there wealth of well, information man 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a conservationist. I'm sure you guys are yeah. too. Like, you know, we got to yeah. take care of, of our Absolutely. ecosystem. And, and the main thing with that is education. It's crazy that so many people walk around with no idea what's mm-hmm. going on in our ecosystem. And if you don't understand that, how we if you don't understand how the ecosystem works, how are you ever going to protect it? Right. It's yeah. impossible. Just even the basic understanding of just like the food chains and how all these animals interact. If you can't understand that, like you're not going to save anything. Yeah. Education. Education. And and you are amazed by how many people don't realize, you know, they just, you know, and well, animals in general uh, have that Disney effect on people where, you know, we've watched so many cartoons growing up of these animals talking to you and singing and dancing and it pulls at your heartstrings and, a lot of people, you know, feel like that all animals survive and have their place. And for the most part, they do. But at the end of the day, everything needs managed to some degree. Uh, and that's the only way to in- ensure the future of conservation is through management. You know, I mean, that's the, the North yeah. American wildlife model is, is basically management, if you will. Um, yeah. And that's exactly what you're doing. Is you're, you're removing an, a, a threat to the natural uh, ecosystem, you know, it, would be no different than that. The threat that you're removing is an animal that eats, you know, it's no different than a plant that grows that overtakes, you know, your garden type of deal. Um, yep. Yeah. And it's, it's always important to think about that stuff. And, you know, in, in a lot of circumstances, especially this one with the Burmese pythons, you know, there's a lot of sympathy and I obviously have a lot of sympathy from it because it's not these animals fault, you know, and, and even in places like Long Island in New York, the deer population is is out of control. It's still not the deer's fault. It's human interaction. We've eliminated all of their natural predators from that ecosystem, and now there's a problem there. But it, it, so as much as my heart goes out to these animals that that need to be managed, it's human human error that's caused them. But we still have to deal with them. Otherwise, our ecosystem and the very species that we love are going to suffer. I lost. There man. you are. There you are. Yeah, we got gotcha. you. Yeah. Got off. We're good. It it should all upload. Yeah. Uh, once we uh, all finish up here, so. Uh, good, good stuff. Good stuff, man. Like, yeah, I think we we covered a lot. Well, we can go on for more, and I think we can cover some. Uh, we'd have a whole episode on feral cats here between oh. the two of you. Or, oh yeah, you, that's you and, uh, that's always the thing that we go to is whenever people start complaining about the Burmese pythons and how bad they are. The first thing that we like to bring up is feral cats, because as bad as these Burmese pythons are down here for our native wildlife, in terms of the entire globe, feral cats are the most invasive species, unless you count humans. But aside from that, they are the most invasive species on the planet for thousands and thousands of extinctions of species, killing billions of native animals every single year. And I love cats. I've you know, I grew up having pet cats. My mom still has four of them. But at the end of the day, when they're feral, they're feral. And we have to take these problems seriously. Yeah. And the reason why we run into that issue is because me, myself, I'm a snake lover. And believe it or not, pretty much everyone who's down here removing pythons professionally is a snake lover. We've grown up 
diving into the swamp, playing with water snakes. And I've been handling venomous snakes since I was just a teenager. And my friends down here, they have king cobras that we feed these small Burmese pythons to after we actually remove them and check them in. So we're snake lovers across the board. Snakes are absolutely vital to our ecosystem. And the point being that we don't remove pythons from the ecosystem because they're snakes and we hate snakes. It's because they're an invasive species. So it's as hard for me to take out a Burmese python as it would be for, you know, a cat lover to take out a feral cat. Well, most- it's a real internal battle. But at the end of the day, it's conservation. It's not going to be just rainbows and butterflies the whole time. There are going to be some hard decisions that have to be made at some point, And that's our sacrifice that we have to make. Most hunters are animal lovers, like in, 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 in yeah. general. And, you know, somebody like yourself understanding the whole entangled web of an ecosystem and conservation and what it means to be a quote unquote manager, um, you know, your type, our type, we do more for the environment than the other 10 times of types that sit around and point fingers and yell at you and yell at us for being hunters. And we do 10 times more for the environment. Um, And -hmm. people really need to understand that what it is to be a manager or a conservationist and what you're, what you're doing. It has nothing to do with, I hate a species. I mean, I kill whitetail deer and wild turkey you know, and I have saved deer's lives that have been hit by a car. You know what I mean? So you don't want to see yeah. them die in that manner. But in, a, in another perspective, there's a whole, you know, hunter gatherer type, uh, you know, segment to it, if you will. And then from your perspective, it's what you're doing for the environment. So all that needs to be taken into consideration, especially from the, the quote unquote, the antis, the people that think that this shouldn't be happening. Um, yeah. You know, it certainly is, you know, in this case, you have to follow the science. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. We could go on and on, but uh, we've taken up a lot of your time here, uh, Kevin. Greatly appreciate you, you know, agreeing to come on and talk with us, man. Yeah. Uh, Happy to spread the knowledge. Yeah. We definitely uh, get this uh, episode out there and dropped. It's, uh, good stuff so thanks for coming on man yeah yeah we'll thanks have, for having me we'll have you on again and uh we'll keep following you on instagram snakeaholic are you on facebook too yeah everything's snakeaholic i own the copyright to it across the board oh so, awesome. nice. instagram youtube facebook all that stuff snakeaholic.com you can find it all <laughs> good deal <laughs>